0: It should be way louder than that for this fill of the room. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Much better, much better. My name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at the, the Church of Blue Ridge. And uh, it's good to see all of you, Wanna, uh, always from the stage, especially if you're, uh, if you're a guest with us this morning. We are, uh, we're just so glad that uh, you have uh, chosen to worship with us. And uh, we, we'd like to encourage you to, uh, to hang around after the service and uh, meet someone that, uh, that you don't know. Uh, I know I would, um, all of our folks would love the chance to, uh, to introduce ourselves and tell you a little bit more about our church and get to know you as well. So, so please take advantage of that, don't, don't jet right after the service. Uh, go ahead this morning, take your Bibles out, turn them on, however you, uh, however you do it, and turn to the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at, at chapter 2 this morning, Genesis chapter 2, we are uh, uh, we're in a sermon series right now that we're calling Apocalypse, right? Not, um, not end of the world the movie Armageddon type apocalypse, but the biblical sense of apocalypse. And so um, if you were with us uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we kind of defined apocalypse as, as a, a revelation, right? A revealing. God is pulling back the veil, showing us how he sees the world, hence the subtitle, seeing the world through through heaven's eyes. So we as a church are are asking God to, to show us the world through, through heaven's eyes. Give us a, a vision of Jesus, if you will. We believe that, that God has revealed Himself in His Son, Jesus. And so we want to we see the world the way He sees it. In light of all the craziness and madness that's going on right now, right? We want to we see the world through heaven's eyes. And so uh, in order to do that in the first part of this sermon series, we're, we went all the way back to the beginning. We went to the book of Genesis, and we want to see how did God make the world, and how did it get in the state that it's in right now. And so so that's kind of where we are. And so in, in Genesis uh, chapter 2 this morning, we're going we're gonna to take a look at really the creation of man. Pastor Daniel last week walked us through um, the, the creation story, sort of this big picture view of, of God's six days of creation. And of course, on the seventh day, he, he rested. But, but our text this morning is a, is a little bit different. If Genesis 1 is like a big picture view, Genesis 2 kind of zooms in a little bit. And so um, this morning, the, the way that I want to approach this passage, right, Genesis is a story. And so really what I want to do this morning is I want to I walk you through the story, right? I think sometimes we um, we do ourselves a disservice when we're reading when we're reading the book of Genesis, and our minds immediately go to this kind of uh, scientific trying to figure out exactly how the world works. Right? You know, you know how far apart did God separate the planets, and those types of questions and other debates about Genesis. The problem with that approach is that that's not how Genesis was written, and that's not how it was intended for us to be read. God has given us the book of Genesis. Moses has written it, has compiled it in such a way to make some really big statements about life on earth. And so we want to we look at those things, and I just want to walk you through the story this morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some comments, some way of explanation to kind of hopefully help you see it better, and we're going to save all the application at the end. All the application at the end. So, so this morning, let's, uh, let's read first Genesis chapter 2, um, 4 through 7, this idea that God creates man. Now we're going to stop with verse 4. Let's read verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now let's stop right there for just a second before we continue the rest of the story. As I said Moses, just imagine Moses, is, he's, got a, he's got a camera, and he's zooming way in, right? We've looked at the creation of the universe, and now we're zooming way in to planet Earth, right? Notice that, that reversal in verse 7 of heavens and earth to earth and the heavens. That's intentional. That's intentional. Um, this is an earthy, earthly story, and it's concerned with earthly, earthy matters. Earthy matters like dirt plants, animals, work, and yes, humans. Humans. Now, uh, you see, while Genesis 1 makes it clear that this is God's story, we saw that last week and even the week before, this story of human history, it's God's story, Genesis 2-4 reminds us that God's story, it includes humans, and we're, we're actually, we play a big part in this story. The, the God of this story is, is none other than the Lord God. Notice that in verse 4. It's probably in all caps. Lord is probably all caps in your Bible. I'd recommend that you underline that because that's really important. What that means, the reason that the the translators have put it in in all caps, is because that's God's covenant name. That's actually Yahweh. That's God's covenant name. The God who made the universe and man, as we're going to see, is also the God of Abraham and Moses and Jacob He's the God who stops at nothing, as we see throughout the biblical story. This God stops at nothing to be in relationship with His people. This God is not some aloof sovereign that's not involved with life on this tiny planet, right? This God longs to be with and even loves this creature called man that He's made. God loves us. Now, hold on to that. Hold on to that idea of of God being here and involved and wanting to be in relationship with us. Because we're going to come back to that at the end of our story. Let's keep reading. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Verse 6. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now, here we see the setting, the setting into which God will create humanity. And it's, it's actually really different than, than probably uh, you may have imagined before, right? This is, uh, uh, this is before the garden, and it's, it's a lifeless place, right? We saw this in Genesis chapter 1 as well. It's much like what we saw there. there there's no edibles, Moses tells us, that were growing in the fields. There's, there's no plants that could even be cultivated for food. Think wheat and corn, all of these, all of these plants that farmers use to, to cultivate the field and plant and feed us. And Moses tells us the reason why. He says God had not yet caused it to rain. It hadn't rained yet. And... Man was not present to work or cultivate the ground. That had not happened yet. So, so God makes man into this setting, and he, he doesn't just make man the way that uh, you assemble an Ikea, a shelf that you get from Ikea, right? Anybody ever assembled a shelf from Ikea? It's the most frustrating thing in the world, right? God, God doesn't make us that way. He doesn't make us the same way that you assemble your kid's uh, bike at Christmas. No, he, he forms man, Genesis, Moses tells us. Like an artist or a potter. Have you ever seen a potter like painstakingly fashion a lump of clay? With care and skill, God forms man from the dust. But this is also very, very personal language here. God breathed into man's nostrils his very life. Face to face. Imagine that in your, in your mind. Face to face, the Creator fills man's lungs with his own breath. It's incredible. That brings us to the next part of our story that God gives man a place and a job. Verses 8 to 14. Read along with me, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he'd formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So in this place called Eden, right, God plants a garden. It's interesting. Now, Moses tells us that this place, Eden, this this garden, was a place filled with beauty and bounty, right? Right? beauty and bounty trees Moses said that were pleasing to the eyes and fruit from those trees that were that were good for bellies right they were good for bellies god watered this garden even by a river that that carried that life out into the world that's that's the whole reason for the inclusion of those four rivers and how they separated god's life is being carried out into the world this garden was was pristine it was beautiful it was beautiful, and the world around it, the way Moses describes it, is filled with potential, filled with with riches and wonders, just waiting for the first humans to explore and cultivate and use them. That's how God made the world. Now, as I was thinking about that this week, right, the thing that comes into my mind when I think about the Garden of Eden is I think of paradise, but but I hesitate this morning to use the word paradise to describe Eden. And, and let me tell you why. When, when I think of a, para, a paradise, this is what I think of. I think of Sandals Beach commercials. Anybody ever seen a Sandals Beach commercial? Right, right. At Sandals Resorts, I'm gonna give you a little promo here. At Sandals Resorts, we all have abs, right? Every single one of us, we have abs, we have perfect tans, we lounge on towels all day, and we drink out of tiny little uh, umbrella drinks, right? That's paradise. That's what paradise sounds like to me, right? That's how I imagine paradise. But read verses 15 to 17 with me. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, now, hold on a minute, right? Work and the possibility of death, that doesn't sound like paradise to me, right? That, that doesn't sound like, like paradise, like a Sandals Beach resort, right? There's no umbrella drinks, no perfect tans, and no soft towels in what we just read. I think the problem is, is that we've imagined wrongly. I don't think God, God created a paradise, but I don't think it's the paradise that we imagined right? This place was beautiful and bountiful. It had everything, everything man needed, but it was a place for work. God hadn't just created for Adam an all-inclusive resort. He made for him a garden and gardens are meant to be worked. Anybody have a garden in the room? Anybody? Gardens are meant to be, they're meant to be worked. And what happens to gardens when they're cared for? Do they produce more or less? Do they produce more or less? They produce more, right, if you care for them. And what happens to a garden if they're not kept or they're not protected? The weeds grow up. The weeds grow up in the garden and the wild animals invade it and it's overrun. Adam is put in this garden with a job and his job is to care for and and to expand the garden, to grow it, even beyond the borders of Eden. That's That's what Moses wants us to see here in this story. Adam wasn't a guest vacation, We have to get that view of paradise out of our minds. Adam is not a guest on vacation. He's a gardener in a garden. To put this another way, Adam was God's first partner, his partner in the project of human history. We saw this last week in Genesis 1, if you were able to be with us. We didn't have time to explore it, but, but listen to Genesis 1, verses 27 through 28. It should be on the screen as well. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Unlike animals and plants... Moses tells us in Genesis that God made those according to their kinds, humans, both male and female we weren 't made, we made according to our kinds. we were made according to god 's image in god 's image now um, we're we 're doing a, we're doing a a thing here at TCBR that we're calling one offs. They're these uh, one night teaching events. And on September the 9th, my good friend Trevor Hoffman, he's gonna be here um, uh, for this one off, and we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna talk about the image of God, right? You can sign up for that on our website. Come see me or Daniel if you wanna find out more about it. But he's gonna do a deep dive on the image of God. And so, but this morning, what, the connection that I need to make for you with this image of God is that part of being made in God's image is this idea of partnership. Adam wasn't put in the garden to go on vacation. He was put in the garden to work. He is God's partner. And as we're going to see in a moment, Eve was also God's partner in connection with Adam. They're not equal partners. Adam and Eve are not equal to God, mind you. We have to keep those two things separate. But humans are God's partners nonetheless. We bear his image. And as God's partners, what that uh, passage in Genesis taught us humans were to fill the earth with goodness, with God's goodness and God's beauty. They were to be fruitful and multiply. Any, any problems with that particular mandate, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Have families fill the earth with other image bearers. They were to subdue the earth. What that means is to harness the earth's potential. Harness its, its hidden possibility. Make the world better than it was, even, right? The ground for Adam in the story of Genesis is literally filled with possibility. You plant a seed in the ground and food grows. Who thought of that? Like, who who imagined that up? God did, right? And finally, Adam and Eve, as God's image bearers, they were called to rule, to push the beauty and the bounty of God's character beyond the borders of Eden to the ends of the earth. Adam and Eve are God's ruling partners in the world. This was Adam, and as humanity's representative, all of our jobs. This is what God created us for. But now, you remember, I'm sure, those two trees, right? The tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil what are they all about, right? Always get that question when you're going through Genesis. What are these trees about? Now, as with every other aspect of the creation story, the story is not about the creation. That's, Moses wants us to see that. This story is not about the creation, per se. It's about the creator, right? The creator. And the creator in this story desires that his people have both life and true knowledge of good and evil, right? God put those trees there for that purpose. I think what God is doing here in this story is He's establishing the terms of His partnership with Adam and Eve. He's establishing the terms. God put the tree of life in the garden because He's the source of life. Life comes solely from Him. And He intended for Adam and all of His image bearers to multiply that life over the face of the earth, right? But God also placed this tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, and as in any partnership, right? If it's a business partnership or any other type of partnership, both parties bear responsibility in the partnership, don't they? God made the dirt. Adam worked the dirt. Adam planted the seed. God brought the rain and crossed the seed to grow. There's responsibility on both ends in this partnership. So, so the point of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's that Adam and soon Eve, they have a choice in this matter. Remember Genesis 1? Six times in Genesis 1, God creates. And what does he say at the end of it? Is it good or bad? It's good. It's good. And then on the seventh day when he rests, he calls it all very good. God designates what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. Only God could do that. So would Adam and Eve, would these first humans, would they trust God? And the way that he had defined good and evil, even in creation, Or would they reach out? Would they take of that forbidden fruit, define right and wrong, good and evil for themselves? Now, we all know how the story goes, right? You'll have to come back next week. Pastor Daniel's going to preach it. He'll tell you all about that. But Moses tells us here in Genesis 2 exactly what happens to Adam and Eve if they reach out and take the fruit. If they define right and wrong on their own terms, they will surely die. This brings us to the last part of our story. God creates a companion for man. Verses 18 to 25. Read along with me. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper, fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, excuse me, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. Let's stop right there. We'll pick up the rest of the, the section in just a moment. As the creator, right, as the one who made everything, including man, as the definer of all good things, of all good and evil, God decides in Genesis 2 that Adam's loneliness is not good. It's not good that man's alone. Adam needs a helper, and so God decides to make him one. So, but but notice what God does. He parades every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens before Adam, And as a part of Adam's duty as God's image bearer, as God's partner, what does Adam do? He names all of them, right? So if you don't like the name dog or cat, you have Adam to thank for it. He named all of the animals. He exercises that authority. But in naming them, in seeing them and naming them, there is none found to be a suitable helper for him. Now this word helper is very important. It's very important. It means in the original language, one who is uniquely suited to help another. In fact, it's even used of God in the Old Testament. He is the only one that can help Israel in the way that they need help. When this word helper is used for God. He's the only one that can do it. So, so what this points us to is that we must reject any modern sense of inferiority surrounding this idea of helper. Right? A helper is not inferior to someone else in the biblical language. That person is not inferior. And this is the case for women. We must reject any sense of inferiority when it, when it comes to women and their creation. Now, now, yes, Paul and the New Testament writers, they're going to pick up on this idea. And they're going to they're say rightly that because Adam was created first by virtue of his naming, that God gives him authority. Adam is supposed to lead. But make no mistake... The picture here in Genesis is of a man who cannot, he cannot possibly fulfill his role as God's image bearer without his helper, without his partner. In fact, Adam would never be able to fulfill his role as an image bearer of God without Eve coming alongside him and bearing that image along with him. So, what does God do? He creates woman, not from the dust. Man, we were created from the dirt but one of Adam's ribs. And like a father walking his daughter down the aisle, he presents woman to her husband. One, one commentator that I like to read, he, he explains it this way. He says, She, woman, Eve, she was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved." Men and women need each other in the creation of the world. And if they are to successfully bear God's image, they're going to have to do it together. Now, Adam responds to God's gift with song, with, with poetry. Now, I, I'm, a, I'm a North Greenville grad, and there were always those guys at North Greenville. That, I'm sorry if you're one of these guys. You carried your guitar around everywhere. You just plop down in random places and start singing and playing. can stand those guys. But here's the deal, like, Right? Those guys always seem to have dates. That was my experience, right? So I was a leg down because I can't sing and I can't play. But Adam could. And when he sees his wife for the first time, he responds in poetry and song. Then the man said, verse 23 This is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Don't miss the fact that the first time that Adam speaks in the entire Genesis story, it's when he sees his wife for the first time. He speaks. We're the same, he's saying. Can you imagine being Adam and God parades all of these creatures in front of you and none of them are like you? None of them are like you and then God creates one from your rib We're the same, he's saying. We're one, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Together they could step into this great task of bearing God's image. Verse 24: Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Finally, Moses points us here to kind of the theological point of this section, right? Marriage. Adam and Eve are the first of what is to be the foundational building block for human society in God's world, the family. Men will leave behind their fathers and their mothers. They'll, They'll detach from their families, and they will join themselves to their wives, and the two will become one. And under God's plan, they will fill the earth and multiply His character and His goodness to the ends of the earth. Adam and his wife are perfect for one another. And for just a moment, just, just a moment, the world is perfect, right? There's no confusion. Adam and Eve aren't, aren't worried about what, what the other thinks of them, right? There's, there's nothing being hidden. They're not hiding anything from one another, and they're not hiding anything from God. They are both naked and unashamed. For just a moment, and it won't last long, but for just a moment, the world is right. Now, I told you we're going to save all the application to the end. There are, uh, there are so many different directions. I think that's the thing that we found as we've been teaching through this. There are so many different ways that, that you can run when it comes to application of this, and there is no way that I'm going to be able to cover them all, or even the ones that I'm going to mention to you, I'm not going to be able to cover them exhaustively. So I'm going to trust that I'm going to give these things to you. We're going to kind of go fast, and I'm going to let you explore them on your own in your missional communities and in your cell groups. But the first thing by way of application that I want us to see here is that Genesis 2 calls us to reject escapism. Genesis 2 calls us to reject escapism. Here's what I mean. Adam and Eve were created from the earth for the earth, right? Friends, we were made for this place. Adam and Eve are our representatives, our humanity's representatives, and we were made for this place, for this little planet spinning around, hurtling through space. We were made for this place. Now, don't get me wrong, sin has broken our world. Our world is broken and marred, but God put us here for this world. And our purpose as God's image bearers, it's unchanged. It remains the same. Now, we're gonna see next week that the image, bearing the image of God has changed. We've marred it, our sin has damaged it. But our responsibility as God's image bearers remains unchanged. Friends, heaven is not our home. Heaven is not our home. As much as a global pandemic and all the social unrest that's going on in our world might tempt us to just desire to just, you know, get on out of this place and go on over to the glory land. Anybody remember that song growing up, right? Get Going over to the glory land. That's not God's plan. That is not God's plan. We're going to see that at the end of the sermon series when we get to Revelation 21. As we're not going to heaven, heaven's coming to us. Heaven is coming to earth and this whole world is going to be renewed and made whole and right. So, so what are the implications of that, of rejecting escapism? It means that God is very much concerned with our natural world. He's very much concerned with the physical world around us. He's concerned about how we use the resources that that He infused into the world that He gave to us for the purposes of bearing His image. He is concerned when we don't use them for that purpose, when we exploit them, right? We're image bearers called to steward those things, and we were made for this world. Likewise, our physical bodies matter, right? Our physical bodies matter because we cannot fulfill our purpose as God's image bearers, right? To to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with other image bearers, other God worshipers. Our bodies matter. God is concerned about what you eat. He's concerned that you take care of yourself, that you exercise once in a while, right? You take care of yourself when you're sick. Those things matter. They're not There's not a secular, sacred divide. The way the Hebrews would say it is they would say all of life is lived before God. There's no sacred and secular. All of life is lived before him. Our physical bodies matter. This physical world matters. Friends, we must reject any sense of escapism and all of its implications. Heaven's not our home. Heaven's coming to earth. Heaven's coming here. Second, we see that Genesis 2 teaches us to value all human life, all human life. God created us with care and wonder in his image, and and we're not to be tossed away. Humans are not to be just tossed away into the garbage as if they don't matter. This winter, when it finally gets cold around here, whenever that happens, right, and you step out into the cold for the first time and you see your breath, I want you to remember Genesis 2. Genesis 2. And I want you to think where that breath came from. Who gave it to you? You belong to God. And so does the the panhandler that you pass in the evenings on Poinsett Highway. He belongs to God. He's an image bearer. Right? The unborn child that our society has deemed um, expendable and unexpected. That boy or that girl, that life is an image bearer, right? The, the elderly COVID patient that was just tucked away in the back of a nursing home and left to die, right? That person matters. They have value. Can I, can, I, can I do, I did me a favor this week. I hope it's a favor for you. I want to clear your conscience on something this morning, right? I can say, you can say, full-throated, without reservation, that black lives do matter. That women matter. And at the same time, while saying that, you can reject all of the unbiblical and all of the ungodly beliefs that those two, the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement, represent. You can reject all of those things and say clearly that black lives matter and women's lives matter. You can do that. Because here's the point. That truth doesn't belong to those organizations. That truth belongs to God. It's His truth. He is the one who gave value to all human life when he made us image bearers. Genesis 2 teaches us to value human life. Third, Genesis 2 teaches us that work is good. This is one of those things that, that we need more time. I, I regret that we don't have more time to go into this because I think it's one of those, uh, one of those aspects of, of theology and understanding within the church that's very lacking. Work is not bad. Work is good. God works, and He created all of us as His image bearers to work. Now, now, certainly, we're gonna see next week, work was made more difficult, right? By the sweat of our brow, now we work. It's made more difficult by the fall, but we must be careful not to see it as a product of the fall. We were always intended for work. Work is good. By, by working, Adam and Eve were bearing God's image. They were growing a garden, right? Don't, don't miss that. So whether you're, you're wiping babies' noses all day, stay-at-home moms, repairing automobiles, or making decisions in an office, right? When our work reflects the goodness and the character of God, we are fulfilling our role in, in the world as image bearers. Work is good. But then fourth, and most important above all, Genesis 2 teaches us to look to Jesus. Genesis 2 teaches us to look to Jesus. Now, we all know that this story, it goes terribly wrong. You need to come back next week and hear Pastor Daniel preach on it. But this story goes terribly wrong. All right, Adam and Eve fail as God's image bearers. They, they reach out. They define right and wrong for themselves. And as humanity's representatives, because, of, because they were humanity's representatives, all of us, every person that's ever born, we're all in the same boat. None of us bear God's image the way He intended us, intended us to do it in the beginning. We've all chosen to define right and wrong on our own terms. In some ways, it's the very heart of sin, right? But remember, God made us to bear His image, and that has not changed. Now, I, remember, I told you in the beginning that that word Yahweh, that we were going to come back to it. This idea that God is a, a covenant-keeping God, that, that He longs to be with His people and will stop at nothing, stop at nothing to be with us. I told you we we're going to come back to it. Because what I want you to see is I want you to see the connection between that and what happens at the end of our story in Genesis 2. Just as Adam and Eve are joined together in the garden as one flesh, they become one. There's a commitment that they're making to one another. God has made a commitment to us. He's committed to us as his image bearers, no matter how badly we mess it up. Long before Adam and Eve reached out and took of the forbidden tree, God had already made up his mind that he was going to save them. He'd already made up his mind. He created knowing that. And what we need, what we need in light of our mess up and all the times that, that we mess up every day, is we need a Savior. We need someone who can do more than just bear God's image, right? What we were supposed to do. We need someone who is the perfect image of God. Now, if you'll let me jump to the New Testament, in steps Jesus... And the New Testament opens with Jesus teaching people how to bear God's image, how to rule the world as God's partners, right? How to rule on His behalf, how to rule based on His definition of right and wrong. Think about this. Jesus in Matthew 5, what does He teach us in the Sermon on the Mount? He teaches us that God's people rule with mercy. Blessed are the merciful. God's people rule with mercy, not cruelty. Blessed are the, are the humble, Lots of people rule with humility, not pride. And and then more than teaching us how we were supposed to bear God's image, how we were supposed to rule God's world on his behalf, Jesus goes and he, he demonstrates that for us with his life, most importantly on the cross. At the cross, think about this. Maybe you've never thought about this before. At the cross, Jesus is hoisted high as the ultimate image bearer as the ultimate ruler, as the one who lives his life in a way that is completely consistent with God, with how he defines right and wrong and how he called his people to rule the world. This is what Paul means when he says in Colossians 1.15, he's talking about Jesus. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the image. We bear the image. In humility and mercy The Son of God laid down His life so that His people could fulfill their role as image bearers. My friends, sin has robbed us. You want to talk about seeing the world through heaven's eyes? Seeing it rightly? Sin has robbed us of our rightful place as God's partners in ruling the world. But Jesus has come to restore us, to forgive our sins to restore us to this place. If, if, if you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Jesus, I, I want to tell you something. God is not looking to save you just so you can go to heaven one day. His story is far bigger than that. His imagination is far bigger than that. God intends to save you, to restore you to this wonderful image-bearing role, this exalted position. And if you will look to Jesus, the perfect image-bearer, if you'll repent of your sin, of all the ways that you've defined good and evil for yourself, He will save you. He'll forgive your sins. He'll restore you to a right standing before God. And one day when he returns, he will make us all into perfect image bearers. And we will, we will be free and rule the world with God forever. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the beautiful story that we have been invited into as God's people. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we, 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 just, we rejoice in the beauty and the grandeur of the story that you're telling, that, um, that you're doing far more than, um, than saving us from judgment. You're not doing less than that. We are sinners and we deserve your judgment, but you're doing far more than that. You're redeeming us to yourself and you're exalting us back to this place as, as your co rulers. And so I pray for my friends that we would begin to to see our lives this week as as those who have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus' forgiveness, that we would begin to see our lives this week as, as in partnership with you. So that as we're raising our families and going to our jobs, interacting with our friends, right, as we're doing all the things that we do in everyday life, that we would begin, that you would give us a vision, that you would show us how all of those things can ultimately be about you, and be about, as Daniel showed us last week, spreading your glory to the ends of the earth. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son. It's in his name that I pray.